You're listening to a Glasgow Women's Library podcast. This is part of our 21 Revolutions programme, celebrating two decades of changing minds at Glasgow Women's Library. For more information on the library, our 21 Revolutions programme, or any of our other work, visit our website at womenslibrary.org.uk. I remember as soon as I lift up the tin, it's old, unmistakably distressed, a big square container for specially selected biscuits. She liked the special selections, luxury assortments, the fastidious choices that ought to make things nice. Some of the lettering banded across it has been partially smoothed away and now shows naked metal. It gives the impression it no longer wants to be articulate. When I loosen the lid, remove it, the interior is blurred in a different way. Too loud, too deep, too much, too violently demanding. It's silly. In a way, it's silly. I needn't be almost afraid of a biscuit tin and its mildly shabby contents when they are just nothing, close to nothing, just a collection of folded papers, knitting patterns. Here they are, waiting for me, my mother's knitting patterns. Here is the scent of her hands, I've opened that too. Here is the echo of her skin and the small gentlenesses with which she surrounded herself, her soap and creams and perfume. Here is the breathing space she tried to engineer, no matter what. Here is survival. And here are recorded decisions, visible indications of yes and no. Some patterns are dog-eared with use. Others she left nearly pristine, kept only for peeking at and for thinking, for balancing by their edges between fingertips while she studied, I'm not quite sure what. She worked up less than half of her collection, the rest she kept purely theoretical. The practical options were most frequently completed for me. The tin is full of familiar lines and drapes, appropriated by models and trapped in some curious flinch of time. These are pieces that accompanied my childhood, while the minute insect nip and click of needles bled into the soundtracks of countless television programs, the distractions we shared to keep our evenings light. And Christ, I actually truly did wear each of these tank tops. Tank tops, for crying out loud. With differently but equally garish pseudo-feral designs. They haunted my inexpert dancing at school discos and on less well-supervised nights out. I combined them with flare jeans and splay-collared shirts and a global lack of personal awareness. The illustrations for each show young people who are rather more attractive than I ever was, but nevertheless also helplessly adrift in the carnival of ugliness that was the 1970s. Every seam and colour choice is inexcusable. The experimental cardigan with ruffles. It still has an alarming undersea look. It appeared in the early 80s and spent its life in a drawer, a pale blue reproach, vaguely reminiscent of Margaret Thatcher's pussycat bow collars and weirdly flouncy blouses. It hadn't occurred to me before now that Maggie was avidly pimping my country while dressed entirely appropriately as a cheap suburban madam. Heavyweight polo neck in tones of brown. I like that. It kept me warm right through university. 
through the chilly lodgings and unwise sex and unfocused rage and general idiocy. Perhaps because brown is a hippie colour, it always seemed to catch and hold the smell of marijuana like nothing else. I remember joking that I should shred it and roll it into spliffs when I graduated. And this pullover, my mother knitted it in crimson, was my favourite. The poor thing slowly bagged and bobbled and became too disreputable for even a student wardrobe. In the end, I made most of the torso into a lopsided cushion because I didn't want to miss it completely. That didn't work, though. It tended to give me the impression I was leaning against myself and was unnerving. It's shown in green on the front of the pattern and makes me surprisingly, suddenly unhappy. Then again, this whole process is unhappy. It couldn't be anything else. I concentrate on the impractical patterns, the ones that have nothing to do with me and will therefore be untroubling, but they were personal to my mother, of course. They still are completely hers. They're dated visions, mildly laughable, manufactured images of brisk womanhood, cliched fathers and carefully delightful children, each dressed in cuddling wool. She decided to find their instructions irrelevant. She'd cast on, count rows, count stitches, maintain an even tension, cast off. I have to assume that her aim was simply to keep their pictures of frozen eyes and coping smiles and unconvincing backdrops. My mother wasn't a foolish woman. She couldn't have found these fragments of spun sugar lives remotely credible, but she must have wanted them. There must have been a reason to hoard up visions of safely contented people in cardigans, twin sets, daring sweater dresses and crocheted tops that clung to unembarrassed curves. She said when pressed that she didn't knit anything for herself because she'd be tired of whatever it was before it was halfway done and wouldn't want to wear it. But the majority of the unapproached designs are for women. Fun things and soft things and pretty things and warm things for mothers and wives who'd appreciate handmade quality. If the clothes weren't for her, they were for no one. She was the only woman, only mother, only wife in the house. For a while, I wondered if those self-assured grins and the promise of contentment when she dressed in the fruits of her labours were a type of encouragement to her, and eventually she would have acted out the fantasy, worn her own creations. Now I believe the unused patterns provided a kind of company. She could look at their covers, the stilted hands and faked postures and the faces attempting to conjure up lives far beyond them, and she could feel that she wasn't alone in having to be who she couldn't be. But she was alone. I didn't understand her, and there was no one else beyond the paper people. She had this and no more. Stacked leaflets, small places where she hid herself or parts of her nature. And before I fully learned that hiding was what we have to do, my mother tried to hide for me. I believe now that my mother knitted because she intended me to wear her protection, her love, and thought this a good thing. She would often complain about our weather. Along with the midges, it was Scotland's blight, but she'd smile when she spoke, and she'd known that a bite in the breeze or a threatened shower might mean I would reach for a present she'd made me, even in summer. 
Out of her sight, she meant me to stay properly defended against the world, stitch after stitch, touched by something she had touched, tucked up in the deepest camouflage she could offer. Knitwear doesn't draw too much attention. It's every day and lets you pass. I left school, left home, and dropped down into England for dreams of success, a pointless degree, the discovery that Britain, not just Scotland, was being punished for who knew what, being too industrial, too intellectual, too slow to get greedy or celebrate depths of pain. My mother kept on with her precautions and sent me tender, foldable parcels, carefully taped and holding gifts I found embarrassing, if not controlling. I started to dump her offerings straight into charity shops. I rarely called her. I moved to a country she didn't know and couldn't visit. The city where I made my home was often dry and caught the sun, and if I needed a pullover, I could buy one. I wasn't going to be her kind of woman. I wasn't going to be breakable. And there was an almost endless list of things, exciting things, that nobody could be expected to attempt while wearing any type of garment hand-knitted by their mum. And I was going to make attempts. I wanted to be shallow, and I succeeded. She sent me her passion, the quiet burning of the care she couldn't show in other ways, and I despised it. I penned myself into a kind of ignorance so that I wouldn't be ashamed I'd run away and left her. I knew, properly and sometimes definitely knew, that I should have done more to persuade her to run with me, to do the impossible thing and be free. But I didn't want her with me. I imagined a clear and original life without the fears I had partly come to see as her fault. Terrible, I do realise, to blame the wife for the violence of the husband to slowly, slowly turn inside and no longer tolerate the hurt of her being hurt. She wouldn't leave. She wouldn't argue. She wouldn't hit him back. And in her face I could see that sometimes she wouldn't think. Sometimes she had gone somewhere and was unreachable, frozen in dark hiding, which left me alone alone to watch her bake for him and make perfect cushions with piped borders and appliqued flowers, to cook pickles and chutneys and dinners and set out his dinner parties with pretending efficient hands. She pressed flowers and then put the best of them in deftly renovated frames, bought an old fire screen to decorate with antique scraps. She eked out her housekeeping money into unrequited wonders and manoeuvred for approval when none would come. Eventually, I got old enough to think she was stupid. It happened after I hit him for her. All of myself and my love in the punch, I was still child enough to think would kill him. He took it and stared at me. Then he went and hit her. I didn't help. There were days when I made it worse. And my mother and I jarred further and further apart because our pressures were not shared, they were incompatible. By the time I was 14 or 15, I was so accustomed to being frightened that I had to believe she was a coward too, or else despise myself. I staggered through my first rehearsals of being adult and wanted to be gone and out in the nights with music and normal people. I hated that I ought to stay, keep watch for her, 
at least keep watch against him. Increasingly, she shut herself up inside pointless activities. While I wished I could never see her again and wished he would disappear and wished the police could be realistically summoned to intervene and wished I could get home late and find her in the sitting room and smiling and tell her about my evening and being loved and dancing and that we could hug together under our big rug of knitted squares and be nearly one person and ourselves and okay and the way that we'd been when I was too small to understand the fear of real things. Just before I left, she made a plan to knit twin Aaron sweaters thick, complex, testing arguments in a wool that softened her hands with lanolin. It was, I suppose, a charm she was trying to work that would make me stop yelling at my father, breaking the phony peace and introducing risks that might be too great. She finished his and he said it smelt of farmyards. That wasn't a good thing. I never got mine. It was the only piece of work she didn't post. And he didn't kill her. I was certain in sick hours that he would. I'd like to imagine that my absence, the removal of my petty resistance and provocation meant her life with him was easier. But that isn't why I wasn't around. And a neighbour told me later, years later, that there had been a hospital trip. Just the one. My father put my mother in hospital broken arm after a fall and the whole street knew about it and did nothing and I didn't know about it and did nothing anyway. I was busy failing to be a wife or a mother. I perfected my own way of hiding, never be with a man who could really be with me or else I'd pick one who was unsubtle, who would turn into my father so quickly I could still get clear at the first hand twitch, the first shout. And I realised that comfort and tenderness were unbearable, terrifying, and so I would leave them. I would leave and leave and leave. Eventually, he did die. Cancer. Almost as unpleasant as I would have liked. She sat by his bedside, bought him peppermints and magazines about fishing, told me in letters I barely read how the end crept on. She moved to a little flat, tiny but hers, and set about baking for her neighbours, attending college classes in flower arranging, genealogy, conversational French. I visited. I did. The neighbours had sight of me. I was a busy London daughter and preceded by a list of achievements. I could chat at teas and was careful to send appropriate Christmas cards to her friends. But when we sat in her living room, left to ourselves, we didn't speak. It didn't work between us. I didn't let it work. I'm paying a local farm to clear the house and taking nothing except this tin. She taught me to knit, but I never kept it up. I think I will work on the pattern she didn't use. I think I will do that. I think I will start to do that. I think I deserve no compassion or forgiveness, not any in the world. I never quite know why uh, stories kind of come together with the elements that they have. 
they sent me from the archive uh, a whole bunch of stuff because uh, I couldn't go in physically and uh, see. And one of the things they sent was a big file full of lots and lots of different um, knitting patterns. And it's it seemed to be just a good place to start, and it's still thought of as quite a feminine thing to do and a, and a hand-related thing to do, sort of touching thing to do. So it seemed to be... Um, a good place to part, and it's sort of passed down from mother to daughter, or grandmother to, to, to daughter or granddaughter. But they're, 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 they're very, I mean, they're very much of a period, and they're very nostalgic, um, and they are very unreal. It's, it's an image of domesticity, it's an image of being a person that's, that's very strange and unreal. On the one hand, it's sort of a good thing to be self-sufficient and to have lots of craft skills and be able to do things and make things, and on the other hand, it's quite oppressive if that's what you have to do because you're the woman. And it's kind of a game now because you've got lots of people have lost those skills, and then you've got all these ridiculous television programs where incredibly posh people with ridiculous amounts of money pretend to make things when they don't need to make things, and their way of making things costs four hundred times more than it would cost to go into bloody shop and buy something. Um, and it's all kind of an insult to everyone concerned. Um, so, so there's that kind of element as well. So that kind of um, domestic pretense that you would make where, uh, you know, it's, it's such a hidden kind of crime. It's not like being mugged. Um, so it all seemed to fit kind of quite well. When you hear about the peaks and domestic violence at the end of every old farm match and stuff, you just sort of think that uh, you would want Scotland to be better than that. Thank you for downloading this free 21 Revolutions Glasgow Women's Library podcast. To find out more about 21 Revolutions, visit our website at womenslibrary.org.uk. There you can find out about the 21 women writers and the 21 women artists who have produced limited edition artworks available to buy from the library while stocks last. You can also find out more about what we do, why we are special and how you can support us. It's all online at womenslibrary.org.uk.